and welcome to the 21st episode of Rams Rant. And today I'm joined by Nick Yaris. Nick is an American writer and professional speaker who spent 22 years on death row after being wrongfully committed of murder. Nick, thanks a million for coming on the show. And I'd like to kick off proceedings by asking, how are you today? Oh, thank you, Richie. It's a, a pleasure to be on the podcast with you. And I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I know it's been a long time coming since we connected after the Joe Rogan podcast that I did. Mm. I've been trying to connect with everyone like I have sincerely with you. And it's really been rewarding that uh, all of these people have reached out to me and asked me to be either part of their platform program. And that is making me today feel really, really positive about my uh, going forward. Yeah. Well, no, it should. It should. And to to dive into it, before we get into the main body, I'd just like to ask you, what are some of your earliest memories of your childhood? Well, here we are in October of 2018. And in 1968, that year, oddly enough, uh, now we're talking 40 some years ago, look, it's crazy. So, that year changed my life. And it wasn't just America's upheaval with the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. or Robert F. Kennedy. It wasn't the riots in the streets that preceded those matters or followed. It was the personal turmoil that I distinctly remember of sitting down one day and having my parents explain to me that I could no longer be friends with my black friends because everything mm. was racially charged and angry. And it's funny because the whole time I was dealing with having this explained to me that the world was chaos inside of my brain. I already had the most ultimate chaos going on. You see in the spring of that year, I had been attacked. And I had been keeping it a secret for months. I had just finally finished healing from a massive hematoma across the front of my head that was four inches wide. I was fitted with prescription eyeglasses and I felt very sheepish and I didn't talk much. So as I sat there on my parents' sofa, listening to how I could no longer be best buddies with Roderick Jones, I also had a deep, dark secret that changed my life forever. I was attacked by a man earlier that year who held a field stone in his hand and hit me in the head with the stone so hard that he caused the nerves in my eyes to shut down and, and began a myopsy that caused me to wear corrective lenses the rest of my life. Inside, wow. I felt so torn about what to do for my parents when they were already facing all this chaos about worrying about their six children being murdered in the street because of the riots that took place in Philadelphia and New Jersey at the time. And 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 how, how difficult was that for you to be told that you could no longer be friends due to the color of the skin of your friend? Like, was that a, a huge moment for you in kind of looking for something like looking for an answer as to why America was suddenly shaped like this as a society or 
I honestly, much. Richie, I honestly felt like it was a follow on from all the bad in the world that I was experiencing. So as I watched the television screen light up with images of um, black people being beat by the police or white businesses being burned or white people being assaulted. And I just couldn't understand how it felt like my eyes had opened up from the attack to a whole world of chaos. And the whole world was suddenly joining in with me with madness. You were saying how you were growing up in such a kind of disturbed time in U.S. society. It, it's mentioned here that in the earlier, in your early youth, you, along with some of your friends, got into the habits of stealing or so, so much stealing cars. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, how, how did that kind of whole situation develop? Like, what led you down to stealing cars for a living in order to gain, you know, a couple of hundred dollars? A lot of it became the alcohol-driven drug abuse of my life. Like most people who have a duality, I call it. When someone has a powerful secret in their life, they are forced to live a duality. The world that they know inside is hidden and suppressed, and every effort is made to keep that secret alive while they then function with society. And the only way that most people do it is by inebriation, by getting drunk, high, whatever. And I did it. I started drinking at the early age of 10. By 12, wow. I was full-blown every weekend, every night with my friends. I escalated it to other drugs up because everything was recreational experimentation in the 70s. For me, there was such a wide variety of drug usage in my neighborhood that everyone was using drugs. From the pot, you know, the pot being sold on the corner to the methamphetamine being manufactured really manufactured literally one block from my parents house by the pagans motorcycle gang who had their clubhouse there it is a world that people can't understand because it's no longer alive but the 1970s were rampant with drug use that makes today's use of drugs far less than it is so it was more so circumstantial rather than choice in this situation. Yes, and both my brothers are dead from drug and alcohol abuse. All mm. of my childhood friends are dead from drug abuse or violence. Of the 26 kids in one photograph that I had, I'm the only survivor only because I was falsely convicted of a murder and sent to death row. My brothers wow. died in my parents' house of drug overdoses. Everybody in that neighborhood went through a, and it's a shame, they, they went through a terrible ordeal in the 80s when the crack epidemic hit. And then Oxycontin finished them off. And during this, this time where you've, you've admitted to those, those drugs, those, those crime, there was an incident where you, you got into, uh, you were, confronted by a policeman because you were driving under the influence and this this ultimately led to you being arrested and i'm just wondering how could you summarize that whole experience that whole that whole event of you driving getting caught and then ultimately find yourself up in jail 
of course. So by now, my lifestyle was obvious. I was a drug addict who was stealing cars to facilitate the drug life. On December 19th, in the early morning hours of December 20th, 1981, I was driving through the city of Chester, Pennsylvania in a stolen 1973 orange Camaro. The radio was blasting and I was driving along out of my head on drugs when a police officer named Benjamin Wright noticed that I had run a stop sign without completely stopping. As he put on his uh, lights and siren, I pulled over. I froze in fear, waiting for him to come up to the car, knowing that I was wrong, figuring that I'd have to go to jail for the weekend, pay a thousand dollar fine, which is one hundred dollars, ten percent, and I could get out. But this was a different incident. As Officer Wright walked up to the car, he banged on the window and I didn't respond because he didn't know. He didn't know that inside my damaged brain that's now drug addled, I have aphasia, a condition that when people are frightened, they shut down physically, mentally. They are unable to respond to vocal commands and they do not move. It's like a form of shock that comes over the brain. So empowering that people have oftentimes stood in the face of events and never blinked. I suffer from this, from the attack when I was seven years old. When Officer Wright pulled me over that night, I sat still and I looked up at him and I waited and I couldn't move. I was powerless to do or say anything. He ripped the door open. He pulled me from the vehicle. He was really angry that I wasn't hearing what he said. At that moment, when he pulled the car door open, the music overwhelmed him because it was so loud inside the car. I didn't even notice it. And before long, he put his arm, his forearm, across my throat and pushed my head back against the roof of the car. When he did that, I couldn't breathe. And I put my arms up and started fighting and flailing and pushed him away from me. Officer Wright took out his nightstick. And as he drew it out of the uh, holder, I grabbed it out of his hand and took it away from him, like a child having a toy taken from him. He went berserk. At six foot four, 240 pounds, no man had ever overpowered this man in such a manner without ever really laying hands on him. But the drugs had me fueled and I had the adrenaline glands pumping so hard, my head was pounding. As I looked down, he reached for his sidearm, the 38 caliber weapon that he was issued by the police force. I reached out with both of my hands and I grabbed his wrist in a desperate move not to let him pull the gun parallel to my face. And when I did, the gun went off as it aimed at the ground and it was a loud percussion that stopped everything. I held his arms frozen in that moment and we looked at each other and then I took my hands away and he put the, put the gun under my neck and he began shouting at me. He told me I was a fool that it almost got us both killed. And he took the gun and used it as a stick to point me into the car and drive me into the back seat. He composed himself, sat in the front seat and grabbed the microphone from the dashboard and began 
radioing for help. But what he began shouting into the microphone stunned me because Officer Wright suddenly began to make it look like the incident was still going forward. He began shouting, help, help, shots fired, I'm under attack, help. But he wasn't under attack. He was sitting in the front seat and I was sitting locked up in the back cage area of his car. That's what changed my life right there, Richie. That moment. And it's it, it kind of rings similar bells. I had um, David Rudolph, who was the defensive lawyer. I don't know if you've seen it, The Staircase on Netflix, which is about um, a, a potential murder and the whole case that goes about it. But he talked a bit about police brutality and the recklessness that is shown by police on a even in today's day and age but back then when you've been that close to a gun being point, pointed and potentially fired at your face or body and to be aware that you were knownly going to go to jail and that a person who was meant to protect your country being a police officer is essentially kind of lying or exaggerating the story just for the benefit of himself but to the detriment of yourself like how how big of an impact does that have on you mentally physically emotionally it's so demoralizing because it was aimed at me in anger when i couldn't control myself richie i couldn't stop i didn't want to tussle with him i didn't want to resist i didn't want to sit there frozen like a zombie and this is the humiliation factor of people don't understand when you have a brain injury People take it out on you and they're so cruel. Imagine you have the hiccups and people laugh at you. But imagine you have a hole in your diaphragm that makes you hiccup for life. And every day you go out of your house and people laugh at you because every time you try to speak, you have the hiccups. That's what I feel like. That's what I felt like back then, especially. I had a hiccup in my brain and it was so hard to deal with. And I couldn't really get people to understand this on the night of the incident. And I, I wish to God that I had the ability to just say, hey, officer, here are my hands or any of that. I didn't get that chance and I got crucified for it. And then this bastard of an officer would get fired six years later for being a criminal himself. But I wouldn't know it that night. All I knew that I was in his custody and the ensuing officers that arrived beat the hell out of me, put me in a van, drove me to the Chester County Jail. And while I was in there, they were deciding my fate. Officer Wright twi tried twice to get in that cell to get at me. But there was an officer there, a sergeant named Red, a black officer. And he kept telling him, not on my watch. You ain't getting in this cell on my watch. So I went before the district judge in the morning and I couldn't believe what was happening. I was still out of it. You know, I really couldn't focus. I end up standing next to the, pro, uh, the public defender at 4 a.m. And he tells me I'm facing life imprisonment. And I just I gave him the dumb look like what? Like for a stolen car? He said, no, you don't understand. Officer Wright said that when he tried to pull you over, you jumped out of the car, ran back to him,
punched him in the face and took his gun and was trying to murder him when he heroically overpowered you and took his gun back. And now you're being charged with the attempted murder of a police officer, kidnapping of a police officer, aggravated assault on a police officer, possession of a firearm for stealing the officer's firearm and robbery for stealing the gun. I couldn't believe it. Wow. I thought to myself, are you kidding me? Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. I kept saying, wait, like if only someone would listen. And I tried in my befuddled, broken mind to try and explain to this guy that I didn't do that. And no one could hear me because I couldn't speak. And it was so frustrating. And everybody, da, 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 teasing me and taunting me and I was so angry, man. So they throw me in a cell in the high security unit in Thornton, Pennsylvania, in the Delaware County prison. I'm locked up 23 hours a day in the recovery unit, they called it, intake. No more drugs, and I'm going cold turkey on all these substances I've had in my system for months and months and months. And I'm angry, and I'm lost. And the only thing in my cell is a newspaper, the December 16th, 1981 newspaper from the Delaware County Daily Times. And the front page was missing. And the only thing on page three that kept catching my attention was the murder of Mrs. Linda Mae Craig, the mystery murder. I don't know why that headline started tormenting me, but for days I sat there going through the shivers and shakes and shits and thinking any kind of way out of here would be better than spending my life here for something I didn't do. Mm. So like the biggest fool in the world, I start concocting the story in my head about this newspaper thinking just whimsically at first, I could barter my way out of this lie that's been put on me. With another lie. I could get out of here. And I wasn't going to go forward. I really wasn't. But then the guard saw me sitting on the bunk. And he walked over and he said, What's the matter with you, boy? Why are you looking like that? And I, I looked at him for a minute. And I, all of a sudden, without any control... I started telling him the concocted lie that I made. The one that was me knowing who did the murder because the murderer told me who, who, that he had done it and I could give them the identity of, of who it was. And this officer ran down the block without speaking a word and went to the sergeant's desk and he got the sergeant to come back and they brought me out to the warden. And the next thing you know, I'm telling the warden my same sad saga of a lie. But they're all believing me. And now they're telling me, oh, my God, what a wonderful hero I am for helping them. This is such an incredible act. They're going to take me out of solitary confinement. They're going to put me in general population. And in three days, if this is all true, they're going to let me go home and they're going to talk to the officer and get my charges taken away. I went back in my cell and I was thinking, this is unreal. Like, is this all true? Could I possibly go home? Well, Richie, was there I sat ever a there. Moment, 
sorry to cut across. Was there ever a moment where you regretted it? As in, I'm, I'm sure as time went on, you would tend to. But at that initial stage, you were saying how delighted you were with the prospect of potentially leaving jail and getting off. Was there ever a moment when, say, you initially told the guard or when you went up in front of the sergeant or whatever, where you double thought or double guessed yourself and thought, what have I done? Or was it always, this is going to work out, I'm going to get free, even though even though deep down you knew it was, it was a lie? No, you don't get that choice, Richie. Once you step out there with a lie this big, that's it. You're either in and you're sucked along with what happens next because of your words, or you're overwhelmed to the point where you give up and throw up your hands. But everything that they said encouraged me so much to believe in this craziness. That's what shook me. I got caught by the con man's creed. I believed in my own lies so much, I forgot it was a lie. And it was a shame because Three days later, the detectives came back, and the man that I identified as the killer had an alibi. You see, I told the police that a man named James, a man who had wronged me a couple years before and tried to hurt me, had killed the woman, and he confessed to me about it. Now, I thought that James was dead from a drug overdose, and it would take the police a long time, if ever, to find him. So I thought I was using a dead person to make up a story just for the chance to get out. I never expected them to find James. I never expected him to have an alibi, be off of drugs. I never expected him to be in a position to prove that I was a lie that fast. But the police wow. came to me and they were so angry. They said, we understand, Nick. You came to us. Because you want to confess. I said, what the hell? I said, look, when I told you my lie, you spoke to that officer who originally arrested me. And this man said to you, he lied. He was willing to take back the charges and allow me to get out of jail for resisting arrest only as my charge. I would deal with the stolen car charges later in Philadelphia but I was on board with him allowing me out. You remember telling me? And the detective said, that conversation never happened. Oh, no. Officer Wright's on board with charging you with the attempted murder. And now we want to know why you killed Mrs. Craig. And I said, but I made up a lie to get out of a lie. I kept saying it. I made up a lie to get out of a lie that was put on me. And he wouldn't listen. So this one detective looked at me and he said, I know why you did it. And I said, why? Why would I go out and kill someone that I don't even know? He said, that's it. You must have stalked this woman like a psycho. And that was the, that was the first time I heard of this. After 13 hours of interrogating me, they came up with this scenario that because I had a fight with my 20-year-old girlfriend, that I somehow must have transferred this anger to this poor woman and that I, I walked out, I, I drove or walked or got out to uh, Wilmington, Delaware, not Pennsylvania, the state next door, and that I would have, be out there stalking her and that I murdered her 
because I was upset over my girlfriend leaving me. And when they told me the story, I, I looked at them like they were out of their mind, but they were really sincere. And I said to him, look, you got it all wrong. I never killed this woman. I never even met her. I made up the story and I kept saying it, but they didn't care. So did you think did I have you, to tell sorry, you this really then, devious part. Go, go, go. They could never get me to confess because I didn't do it. So they did this really devious trick on my way back to the jail that night. There was a pagan motorcycle gang leader there in the holding cell. The detectives brought me into the holding cell and made a big show of pretending that I was their friend who had just come back from informing on my co-defendants right in front of this man. Knowing that this guy was going to go back to the block and tell everybody I was a working informant in the maximum security unit where five of his gang members were locked up. <coughs> in the days that ensued, I was assaulted every goddamn day by inmates in that cell. I had my eye almost put out with a sharpened spear. Every time they opened the door, I had to fight my way to the shower to wash off the urine and bleach that had been thrown on me, man. They were sincerely trying to kill me every goddamn day, and I didn't know why. Finally, after six days of this, I hung myself, and they put me in the prison hospital. My mom came to visit me, and she said that she couldn't understand me. She didn't know why I would put myself in these situations. And for the life of her, she couldn't understand why I would kill myself. I had no ability to tell her anything because, again, I had aphasia. I'm a drug addict. I can't talk. I was so ashamed. But she made me promise her from that day on that my life was her gift to me, that I didn't have a right to take her gift from her. Because I promised her, no matter what the fuck these people did to me, I was going to live. So, I went back to my cell from that hospital, and they put an inmate named Charles Michael Catalino in the cell next to me. He kept trying to talk to me that night through the window, but I wouldn't speak to him. I was so demoralized from being humiliated from having tried to kill myself. The next day, I was taken out of that cell and put into the Chester County Prison. And the shame of it is, that was all a ruse. Charles Catalino said that I confessed to him of the murder of Linda May Craig. And even though he was in jail for robbing the prosecutor's home and uh, abusing the prosecutor's pets during the burglary and being convicted of a jury, Charles Michael Catalino came forward as a credible witness to say that I was the person that had killed Mrs. Craig as told to him by my own words. They put me into Chester County Jail and I never saw Charles Catalino again. And I never had a conversation with this man. That was the prelude to what came next. And was 
at this period of time, did did you see any light at the end of the tunnel? Or did that moment where you were in the hospital and your mother had words with you and had a chat with you, was that, like, can you pinpoint a moment here where it all changed for you, just mentally rather than maybe physically? Yeah. All these inmates were being led by guards past the hospital wing to go get their medication, and they were using the backs of their hands to make the crybaby motion at me, taunting me in front of my mother who sat beside me at, in the, at the bed. And she, I swore right then I was never going to kill myself. If I died, it was going to be at the hands of someone else or the state but I wasn't going to kill myself and break my mother's heart after what she had to deal with watching these cowardly little inmates go by and taunt the two of us because I was in restraints on all fours in the hallway. There was no room in the hospital wing for me as a suicider. So that was the moment that I decided right then I was going to somehow stand up to this. Now, what happened, crazily enough, I did come close to believing in hope in April of 1982 when I went to trial on the original charges by Officer Benjamin Wright for the attempted murder he said that I tried to commit on him. And oddly enough, everything did not go as they thought it would. The jury listened to his story. Oh, it was a doozy. And then they looked at the evidence and it all came down to physical uh, scratches on his hand that he said proved that I took the weapon off of him. And my lawyer cut through all of his BS by pointing out that if he had been assaulted so hard by me, such as to bust his eyeglasses against his face from me hitting him with his own pistol, surely he should have photographed that. The jury understood what that meant. I was found not guilty of all charges relating to Officer Benjamin Wright in April of 1982. Immediately, Prosecutor Barry Gross stood up and threatened that I would never leave that MF and County alive. He's exact words. He then turned on the jury and attacked them and told them that they had just let a murderer go. He turned on my mother. And shouted at her. I knew right then things were going to change. I went back to the holding cells and the sheriffs were really nervous for me. Officer Benjamin Wright had to be restrained in the hallway because he was trying to pull his pistol out to blow my brains out. I was that scared that I knew something had changed. The very next week, Officer, um, the prosecutor, Barry Gross, took over the prosecution of Linda May Craig's homicide case that he had never before been involved with, and he began seeking the death penalty against me, even though no physical facts of the case had changed since the original arrest after Charles Catalino said that I confessed to him. In June of 1982, I was given a three-day murder trial for the capital murder of Linda May Craig and I was told that it was going to be three days long by his honor, 
Robert R. Kelly, because that was his opening statement to the jury, actually. You see, it was just a few days before America's 4th of July celebration of independence. And that being said, his honor wanted the jury to know that he understood that they all had a grave concern, he said, that they wouldn't be able to go home to their families and celebrate the 4th of July with fireworks and hot dogs. But he wanted them all to know this trial would be over before the weekend and they could all plan and go and have a wonderful weekend. And I knew my life was over right then, Richie. Right then. And during that case or that trial, when he initially says that, were your lawyers confident of getting a positive outcome or did you feel that it was very much doomed from the get-go? I paid Sam Stretton $1,500 to represent me for both trials. That $1,500 was the inheritance given to me from my dead grandfather on my 21st birthday. Crazy. I had no lawyers. I had a guy from Philadelphia who was a Democrat represent me in a heavily Republican uh, Delaware County situation. Any argument or protest of the abuse of evidence from the case was dismissed heartily by Robert Kelly. In fact, Robert Kelly said to my lawyer, he blamed himself for the jury finding me not guilty of all of the charges against Benjamin Wright because he didn't allow the jury to know that I was charged with murder in a separate case, even though the law protected me as such. So he made it his personal mission to see that I got convicted this time, he said. That was the judge talking to my lawyer. And this eventually ends up being in at the end of the case or the trial. You get sentenced to death and you're you're sent to death row. And I don't earn so much ask like mentally how you felt. I'm sure it was such a traumatic and terrible experience, but what 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 sort of experiences do you experience while on death row? Oh, it changed. See, I went to death row so early on when they just began using it again. There was only 12 men in the state of Pennsylvania that were under the sentence of death in the penitentiary system. I was initially held right outside of the Philadelphia area in Greaterford Penitentiary. But soon after, they didn't want me in their prison anymore. Especially after the order came down from Robert Kelly to send me to Huntington Prison. People don't understand the history of penology in America, but it started in Pennsylvania. The very first penitentiary system was created in Philadelphia. Eastern State Penitentiary was created by and designed by an Englishman. The bespoke hub design is a great way for a central unit to keep eyes on the spoke cell block housing around it. I was in a prison built in the 1800s 
that was initially designed for mentally ill prisoners. I was in that prison in the aftermath of what began many years before as a form of torture there. When you entered B Block in Huntington State Prison in Pennsylvania, you were not allowed to speak. That rule was vehemently reinforced every day with beatings and torture. If you broke the silence rule, four heavily armed men and a nurse ran into your cell, pinned you down, and the nurse jabbed you in the ass with 1,000 milligrams of Thorazine or Haldol, and you were wiped out mentally from this experience. If you persisted in kicking off and making noise, they put you in a glass bubble. Bricks made of glass, sealed, allow the officers to see you visually. No sound can come into this brick environment, but the lights are left on 24 hours a day. You're made to stand up every 15 minutes for a head count, they call it. If you last a week under these conditions, you are a superhuman being. So when you're in in death row and you're experiencing these traumatic and horrible experiences and you know deep down at the back of your mind that it's all it's all a lie, you shouldn't be there. It, like is it is it more or less impossible to keep hope when you've been sentenced? to that row and you know everything's gone against you but when you actually hear the judge say guilty or the jury say guilty and you end up in there behind bars like is there is there any way to mentally be strong enough to allow yourself to believe that you know what one day I will actually get out of this one day the truth will actually I don't know if this is a human phenomenon but invariably when you speak to death row prisoners In some cockamamie and often very convoluted manner, they'll tell you how they're going to not only escape the death penalty, but go home. Or they're full on into it. They really believe that they're going to die. I wasn't involved in that. I knew I hadn't lived a good life and I didn't like myself. And I was willing to suffer. But at the same time, I also felt very deeply that I shouldn't be doing, I shouldn't be put through this, especially when this all started off of one person's lie that was greater than one that I tried to tell, but it doesn't matter. I'll pay for the one that I told. And it's different for me also. I I wasn't just dealing with these average things that you asked me about. I was dealing with being convicted of a psychosexual driven murder. So I was treated to the ultimate harshness of reality. You see, anytime some coward got his handcuff off during the process of us being transported, I got sucker punched. Anytime a coward with a weapon thought that he was somehow avenging the world, stabbed me, assaulted me, tried to blind me or do something. You know what I mean? So I didn't think in these normal 
reposive thoughts that we can now share. I didn't have that luxury. All I knew was every day was just full on and that's it. But then came an awakening and it took me a couple of years. So like I said, I went through the first two years of silence and it was really hard on me for that. But an officer, I won't call him a guard. This guy's an officer, took pity on me and allowed me to go into a cell and collect some books from a man who killed himself in that block. And there began my awakening. I would use these tools fervently to try and do one thing. I was tired of people speaking over top of me and using words that I didn't understand. I was tired of people making a mockery of me because of the manner in which I spoke. And that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to be spoken like a human decent man on the day that they executed me. And I didn't care about getting out. I wasn't living with hope. My only True drive was that somehow, some way, I didn't falter on the day they executed me. So I didn't start this education process thinking, oh man, when I get out, I'm going to be a great speaker. None of that crap. I just didn't want to let myself down when they took my life. And I was sentenced to the electric chair. That's how long ago this happened. So I was going to only have a few brief moments to try and memorize some beautiful words and try and hopefully speak up for myself before they took my life. And I didn't want to do it badly. But if you were to fast forward the 22 years and you find yourself in 2003, how how did you get to that point where eventually evidence had been presented and it then proved you of not committing the crime and in 2004 you're eventually released but I'm just wondering how did it get to that stage where did you have a team working behind you was there a sudden epiphany by a guard or an officer by yourself no, I, how, how did you I began you this know? whole journey of the last 15 years of a battle for DNA testing from February of 1988 when I be, was the very first man in the United States on death row to file an application for the use of DNA science to prove my innocence, I went through an ordeal within an ordeal. I went 15 long years struggling to get the evidence to speak for me, only to be met with folly deceit and courts that weren't willing to help organizations on the outside that were turned away or told that I was insane by my own lawyers. And finally, sheer bad luck when the evidence spilled in 1998, it looked like I was done. So in 2002, I was uh, stricken with hepatitis C and my liver was badly damaged from the treatments. I contracted the disease, oddly enough, on the beating they gave me because at one point I made the mistake of trying to escape. 
and they punished me for it with a four-minute beating that broke some of my teeth. So back in the day, in the 80s, the dentist never cleaned the return suction that sucked out all the blood from your mouth. And he transmitted hepatitis C to a lot of the guys on death row. So after I listened to a man named Dale Carter die in the ventilation system underneath my cells, screaming in agony from the impacted bile in his stomach while the nurses taunted him, I said, enough is enough, man. I'm next. I already failed the treatments. They blinded me. I'm done with this, man. No more. I had read every book I could get my hands on. I had learned everything I could about myself and life itself. I was willing to die. So I wrote a letter and I asked to be executed. And the federal court in Philadelphia, upon receiving my letter, decided to try the DNA evidence to be ordered one last time just for the sake of it. And it's crazy because in February of 2003, DNA evidence came back and proved me innocent. But I would sit in that cell for another year. They didn't want to let go of the monster. They didn't want to let go of someone they had tortured. They damn sure didn't want to let go of someone they believed was going to come back on them with a vengeance. The fear was so much that the prosecutor's office literally wanted to know where I was going to live when I was released. Was was that the toughest, like arguably the toughest part was when evidence proved that you did not commit the crime? But as you said, it pretty much took a year for you to be released. Was it that uncertainty and that fear within that year period of even if I do get out, am I going to be able to survive or will I ever get out? Was that period probably the toughest or was was, the initial? It's funny because you're probably hitting upon a lot of truth. It was hard knowing that I could show everyone that I finally didn't deserve to be there, but why am I still here? But at the same time, I knew I was about to face the greatest test of my life, not death row, freedom. But then I had this wonderful experience where they stripped me of all my belongings. So I had nothing to do but think all day. And I would sit there and I would really come to this realization that God gave me this wonderful gift. The time that it took for me to educate and grow wise was my preparation for freedom. And if I got out and I've, I somehow managed to survive this illness that was ravaging my body. Maybe, just maybe, I could do some good in this world. And I was willing to do that. I was willing to forgive society for what it had done to me. I was willing to give my heart openly to love and to be a good man because what else could I do to make sense of it all? What answer do you have in life when things rip you apart? There are none. The only answer and the only way back from any tragedy is true kindness. Kindness to yourself to be open to healing. Kindness to yourself to give up your anger. And finally, I realized something else, sir. The best part of my journey was 
I left prison educated. And my education has carried me to this point 14 years now, where I have everything I could ever hope for headed my way. Well, that's a fair point. And you speak now about freedom and the acts of kindness are the only way to really make sense of it all. But how was the initial, let's say, six months a year when you've gone from spending 20 plus years of your life confined to a cell, getting beaten, never being listened to, always being on the bad side of luck, to being so-called free in society. How did you handle that? A lot better than people would ever imagine. I had, a, again, a crazy situation where I was given nothing. Because I wasn't on parole, I was entitled to no housing, no job training, no medical treatment. So I had to get on as best I could. And yet, at this very same time, I stood up for my friends who were still on death row. I met two men who I believed in, who were innocent. And I started this wonderful campaign across Europe, hoping to deprive Pennsylvania of economic growth by doing this wonderful speaking. And I felt so good that I had realized that it didn't matter that I was going to struggle. It was obvious I was going to struggle and I wasn't going to get no help from no one. But, oh, my God, the, the ability and power I had to speak in the governing halls of England and Sweden and Italy and just being only 10 months out of prison. I knew I was right. That's what I kept saying to myself. I knew I was right to do this this way because. At no other way could I have gotten the honor and respect given to me to go and speak in the houses of government or before the United Nations or do any of that with vulgarity. I couldn't do any of that with being nasty and angry and calling out for vengeance. The only way is obvious. And it's the same way with my personal life. I've struggled a lot because I've given so much of my love to others that I suffer for them. And I struggle because of that only, you know, if I wanted to be all about myself, I could have just stayed a single person and just and stayed away from all of the effort. But for me, and I always go back to the fear of 13, the documentary they show on Netflix. I didn't lie to anyone. You see, I knew I was going to get out. I was going to find a girl. I was going to be, best of all, a great dad. Because that's what I'm driven towards, passing on every bit of this knowledge and effort that I made to grow to these daughters of mine. That's what I want to do. I want to share everything on the longest living survivors I could hope to help pass on this wonderful message. See, I get it. My life is short, so I'm trying my best to leave a message worthy of my time. And all of us are living under a death sentence. There are no appeals, so I damn sure don't want my last day to be spent angrily lost to this, this stupidity other people got me involved in. Well, that's a nice way of putting it. And uh, You touched on it there. There's been the documentary uh, entitled The Fear of Thirteen. 
You've also had the best-selling autobiography, Seven Days to Live My Life. No, no. The, the, the book I now have out is Monsters and Mad Men. I'm actually going through transition, Richard. They're going to stop printing uh, Fear of 13. So if you can get a copy of that one, that's a rare one now. Um, okay. The kindness approach is doing quite well. But, yeah, we're going to retitle my book because there's a major motion picture and I have, I can't, uh, this is killing me. I have a major movie star who's going to help me relaunch the book uh, soon in America. So to okay. be decided is wonderful opportunity. Right. But Monsters and Mad Men is doing really well on Amazon right now. And that's a separate story that no one even really knows about. Imagine this whole story that I told you has a story hidden within it so big that I kept it from my audience. Imagine every wow. bit that I shared with you, this amazingly complex story has a whole separate rocket ride of a story that I didn't want to overwhelm people with, but it's true. You see, I was put into a specialized unit when that prison in Huntington was closed down. And because I was convicted of a psychologically deranged murder, I was put into a, an experiment in Pittsburgh. 48 men were put there who were cannibals, serial killers, and the worst of the worst. And the guards put in charge of them made the Princeton experiment look like a joke for the things and abuses that then unfolded. Until 2018, I decided to keep this book a complete secret because I didn't want to make people lose hope or miss the point of everything I shared in the fear of 13. I felt it was so important to keep that message pure that I kept this all on the side, but people are really going to enjoy this because I think it's one of my best works. So thank you, Richie. Thank you for letting me share all this. And I'm really impressed that we got a chance to do this, even though it's so far apart, brother. I know it's it's the glories of technology and man I did the Fringe Festival in Scotland and I loved it in 2007. Yeah, and I, I've had some great experiences in the UK. I'm such a UK uh, lover, man. I do. I used to host the Globe Theatre after Titus Andronicus was performed, and Cleopatra would walk me out on stage and introduce me to the audience. What a blessing! And the last question I want to touch on before I let you go on your day is you've done a lot of incredible things since you've been released. You've told your story, but more importantly, you've looked to help others, which you've previously stated here. But like with everything, you get a lot of positive, but then you also get negative. And I don't want to shy away from the fact that there are negative people out there who give negative feedback. And what's, what's your take or your mindset towards people who might say I don't believe him or say negative things about you after you've been through so much yeah. how do you good do is going to win Richie listen even the most venal bastard the most rotten hearted person still doesn't realize good is going to win you know why because even while they were celebrating attacking someone and feeling really good for that rib kip someone they felt good <laughs> I've never been bothered by people who said negative things because 
some of the very same people who thought I was a deranged psychotic murderer think I am now one of the most eloquent people they could meet. Their perspective is the one who changed, not me. And I've also learned this. Take to heart one tiny percent of each comment. Don't let everyone uh, overwhelm you. But then again, take to heart a little bit. I have learned a lot. I've learned that there is always going to be someone disbelieving in you, disbelieving that you really are that good of a hearted person, that you're that wonderful man. But my perspective isn't allowed to be that. My perspective is this. I'm sorry that you're missing out on having a really wonderful friendship with me. I'm sorry that you miss out on meeting someone who would be so respectful and kind and nice to you in person. I'm sorry that you've immediately lost out on any good for yourself. And you're the one who's really hurting yourself, not me. Yeah, strong words. But, well, um, when you know, well, listen, every good person just heard that. Every good person knows exactly what I said is true because they know they're a good person. And no matter what's said about them, they know what's inside and they don't they don't fall for it. They actually feel pity for the person saying horrible shit about them because they realize that person's losing them. And that's what I feel for anybody that's really been unfair to me or done me wrong. I'm like, dude. You lost out on the best friend ever, man. Like I have some amazing connections and that's what holds me up. I, I keep thinking like when I have this connection with this guy, why wouldn't someone else want that? Or why are you so jaded inside that you can't allow yourself? And I guess it all comes down to ego. Nick, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and hearing about your life story and the good and bad that has come of it. Um, I'd like to wish on behalf of um, the podcast and also the listeners as well, um, you with all the best in your future endeavors. And listen, I'm looking forward to reading that other story, the book you mentioned. I'll leave that link for the listeners. Um, oh, thank you, sir. Below. Yeah. Hey, this was actually really brilliant. I, I like doing this early in the morning because I had my cup of coffee. I already went out and got in trouble telling the old lady to be no, be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> but no, this is this is life, and this is what's wonderful. I'm really getting ready to go and start my own podcast down in Los Angeles in the next couple of days, and I, I, I'm really honored to do this with you because you've helped me again. Every time I do this, I do it better, and I'm trying, sir. I'm trying like you to have a positive outlook and message that I want to share with people. So thank you to every one of Richie Allen's listeners. This is so important for this young person to try and do this because he's like me. He's trying his best just to share a positive message, hoping that it makes someone's shitty day a little bit better. And that's all we can hope for, brother, right? Exactly. Go and have a brilliant day, man. Thank you again. Yes, sir.